and welcome to Cancre, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. My name is Sebastian. And uh, later on, we have the first part of a two-part interview, yeah. because these two are just fantastic. I am referring yes. to our uh, interview guest, Nathan M. is uh, lined up later. They'll be talking with us about It's a Sin, fantastic conversation. We brought them on. They are the hosts of the Lesby Gay podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, we brought them on to talk about It's a Sin, available on Prime Video. It is a tour de force of television from the UK mm-hmm. and uh, we talk about it in quite a bit of detail and uh, in the next couple of weeks we'll be having them in for the other part of the interview where we talk about queer actors or straight actors playing gay roles mm-hmm. so interesting conversation to come up there we also have an interview lined up with the executive director of the Canadian AIDS Society happening at some point next week so more great content on the way with Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media now let's circle back a a hot second here because last week sebastian we talked about red deer alberta do you remember that conversation yes yes okay refresh us refresh us or refresh you we will we'll just freshen up in general we should freshen up the audience as well Absolutely. So last week, the Red Deer Public School Division, uh, there was a motion on the table from one of the board directors essentially saying we should have a Pride Week. It'd be great. Uh, But certain members of the board really didn't like the idea of having a Pride Week, but rather wanted a just sort of generic Pride, not even Pride, just generic, yay, differences, celebration. It, it was, was diversity, a, but not like uppercase diversity. It was like, it was like low, case. like descriptive word diversity. Yeah, and it even <laughs> included like they referenced a like um uh like a, a team spirit day type thing that they'd had, and it was just very messy. And it mm. sort of it seemed a bit of a cop out. It was just so, so watered down. Yeah, it was more water than material at that point. You know what I mean? Here's the thing. If they didn't do this instead of Pride, but did this as well as Pride, it could have gone in a good direction. Like you could do something good with this kind of thing, so long as you're not canceling Pride Week or Black History Month or some kind of Indigenous Education Day or something like that. Like if you're doing that as well as instead of in lieu of, (laughs) it could be a positive thing, but uh, nope. So what's the update? What, what's the going update on? is uh, folks from the uh, Alberta Advocacy Group, Black and Indigenous Alliance, has teamed up with local LGBT activists and are uh, protesting the Red Deer uh, Public School Division's offices. They have been doing so uh, this whole week, pretty much. And uh, they have been putting little pop-up posters on, mm. and uh, they've been... There's been considerable amount of people giving feedback to the board. Right. And what's really interesting is normally when we see things like this happen, and let's not be on, let's be on this year, LGBT folks are very critical of this decision, ourselves among them. I was mm-hmm. certainly quite critical. And uh, it seems like the Red Deer Public School Division has heard the feedback on both sides of the uh, the argument. There have been some who have been uh, in favor of this particular decision. Okay. Um, and what they've done is they've invited folks who have reached out to speak to them to join them for the private portion of the uh, school board meeting 
that that's coming up soon. So they're actually listening to people in the community. They've invited community members to come and and talk to them and, and tell them how it's important, what the impact is, why this may have been mishandled. Um, and yeah, I think this is constructive. You know, the protest put a bunch of posters up on the front door. The posters were all taken down, but school staff took photos and provided the board trustees with the photos. Mm-hmm. The chalk messages on the floor are still there. You know, what I like about this is obviously this is very serious, and I don't think it's been handled well in terms of the decision-making. But the the sort of next step, what happens next, I think has been very well handled. You know, the fact that, you know, the 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 peace and, and love signs may not be up, you know, a spot in the wall, but you can rest assured that all the directors saw them and, and, and you know, read them. So, yeah, I think it's encouraging. This is this is a, a good way of addressing the situation. So great on you. Um, you know, I think this was handled very well. So hopefully Red Deer Public School uh, Division will listen to, to all the folks involved. And uh, I don't know what their decision will be as they move forward, but it's certainly encouraging that they made the decision to, to reach out and have folks... Uh, come and speak to them. We are going to be playing our first song before we jump into our interview with uh, Nate and M. Like I said, fantastic conversation. We hope everybody uh, joins in and has a great time. This is uh, Leah Sell. Uh, sorry, this is Leah Lise Canali with Invisible War. Um, it's quite upbeat. It's a great track. It fits in really well with Years and Years cover of It's a Sin uh, a little later in the show. And uh, yeah, I think this is a great upbeat pop track by a Canadian artist uh, who is queer identified and we will be back just after this.
and welcome back to Cancre, home of Canada's queer media. Uh, this is, I have been at the edge of my seat. I have already, I, I had to explain to work this morning why I had puffy eyes from crying all night, uh, having finished watching It's a Sin. Now to join me and Sebastian today in the conversation about this incredible piece of television by Russell T. Davis, we have the equally talented, I would say, Nathan M. Uh, from Lesby Gay. Uh, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, i lovely to be back. I brought my co-host this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were certainly very well received. I was telling Sebastian that uh, I personally really enjoyed our interview. And uh, we heard from a couple of listeners that you, they also were, uh, were big fans. Oh, lovely. Well, to those listeners, Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, um, for the audience's sake and uh, for Sebastian, and you kind of, I think Sebastian and the audience are now interchangeable. I see where you're going, but yeah. You see where I'm going with this? Yes, no. because our our listeners, the super fans, we call Sebastian's mum. Uh, because they're led by Sebastian's mum. And uh, in this case, our super fans may not have seen the show. It's a sin. Uh, so part of me thinks that Sebastian is Sebastian's mum. Is that Just think of me as the captain of the spoiler watch. Okay, you are the spoiler watch. I love it. So Russell T. Davis has created this period uh, piece set in the 80s, uh, it features a, all the queer roles, all of the gay roles in the cast are played by gay actors. And it features heavily the storyline of uh, a group of men and uh, uh, a woman in the 1980s in London uh, over the course of about a decade. Mm -hmm. And it essentially follows the emergence and the sort of dealing with the HIV AIDS crisis and epidemic that had a devastating impact, uh, not only in the UK and London, but of course, all across uh, the world. Do you remember uh, what year it started in? Um, 1981. Yeah. 81, okay. okay. That's in the, in the show. Yeah, first episode. Thank you for that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know. It's actually very important information because it's the difference between uh, grids and HIV and gay AIDS. Like it mm. went through a, a mm -hmm. period. So 81, they would have moved off of, no, it was still grids and they were in the process of renaming it like a third or fourth time at that point. So mm. this is all like important context for understanding the story. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm glad you bring that up, Sebastian, because I think that is one of the things that was so well captured by this series. The and I think line? that well, well, no, I'm specifically referring to the evolution of language here. Mm. So in the show, you start hearing, uh, you know, we start to initially hear about, um, you know, the, the gay cancer mm -hmm. um, sort of emerging in the early couple of episodes and they keep calling it all different names. I feel like every scene where somebody mentions it, it it's got a, a different name. Mm. Um, but that pretty much reflects what was happening at the time. What were yeah. your thoughts when you were kind of following, trying to follow along where things are? Yeah, well, I um, care a lot about like <laughs> the AIDS epidemic and remembrance of that and HIV AIDS prevention. So it's definitely not the first media I've consumed <laughs> about the AIDS crisis. I've consumed a lot of media <laughs> about the AIDS crisis. So I already knew 
a lot about the history, but I, I agree that I think they did a really good job as far as tracking that and also um, showing how like uncertain people were while all of this information was coming out and mm -hmm. that people didn't know. Cause I think we can look back on the AIDS crisis and be like, well, we understand what HIV and AIDS is. And so we know how it affects people, but then realizing that at the time, like this was all new and people were just hearing about it and then it didn't get the media press that it deserved. So, you know, I thought they um, showed that very, very well in the series. And I think that they did a very good job of kind of differentiating or comparing the timeline in the United States to the timeline in Britain. Cause there's mm -hmm. like, many times when they kind of compare it as such and they're like, oh, this thing's happening in America. Oh, that just happens in America. And then yeah. some people like start hypothesis hypothesizing when it'll come to the UK where they are and all this mm -hmm. other stuff. Um, and so I think it does a very good job with that. With the whole timeline jumps, it was funny because there was moments when I was like, what? They're already, they're already best friends. And I'm like, oh, wait, it's Christmas now. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. Like, it's been a semester. <laughs> oh, it's been like a whole, okay, that makes sense, right? Um, I mean I think it's worth noting that this series was filmed during 2019-2020 and it was actually heavily impacted the production by COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So they actually lost two or three episodes worth of content because they oh, just wow. couldn't film it. Um, oh. Yeah, so Russell T. Davis said that one of the things that they lost was a planned episode sort of 10, 20 years later, looking at where some of the you know characters maybe kind of looking back having survived or being surviving with HIV AIDS, mm. you know, because of course it, it is a story that didn't finish in 91. It's, it's mm. very much with yeah. us now. And unfortunately that was something that didn't get to happen because of this current uh, epidemic, mm -hmm. uh, which is quite a, quite a crisis. One of the things that made me quite, you know, which makes me pause is, you know, this is our living history insofar as those who survived this epidemic. Um, you know, these are folks who are the elders in the LGBT community now. And there are so many figures that are still prominent. In, I think, the third episode, there is a TV ad that comes up where there's like a tombstone with the words AIDS being chiseled onto it. And that's a, a pretty prominent commercial that people would have been familiar with. Sebastian, I'm sure you're familiar with the sort of doom and gloom AIDS infomercial that came out in the UK. And uh, the guy that did that on behalf of the Thatcher government uh, just last week stepped down as Lord Chancellor of the House of Lords to go back to focus fighting AIDS. Like this man is not only still alive, mm. um, but, you know, is is still uh, actively fighting it. And I, I bring this up because it is not just a, a, a dramatization of our history, but these are real people. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of real lived experience here. Do you think that the series has done justice to that? I think so. I mean, yeah. I think it's really beautiful representation. And I think that it's also, like you were saying, so important at this time, and especially I think about like my generation of gay people, we're both 22, mm -hmm. that we don't, I mean, we're not taught about the AIDS crisis because mm -hmm. it's not like they're teaching us in school. And so, you know, like learning about these things, I think it's so important for the younger generation of gay people 
to understand the history and to understand that like this is still happening um, and that we really did lose a whole generation of gay people. Yeah. And I think it's lovely that it showcases um, things that happened, what do people say? Across the pond. Um, <laughs> because uh, I, I always think about queer represent, representation here in America, at least about like things that are in the mainstream and things that I've seen because I'm queer and seek that media out. Mm -hmm. Like it's more independent and uh, harder to get in front of people's faces. But I feel like with this too, I mean, it it's very prominent in a mainstream I, mm -hmm. and because it tells the story of the AIDS epidemic in a different country than uh, than mm -hmm. than us here, um, mm. then I think it's very very prominent and also um, very necessary because some people still kind of think that it only really happened in like major cities, like over here right. on this coast and over here on that coast, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I also think people empathize with it more right now. It was kind of you know. Uh, you know, wish it was under better circumstances, but I think a lot of people empathize with it a lot more easily considering there's a global pandemic happening right now, mm -hmm. which obviously wasn't the initial plan. Um, <laughs> but I think um, people are kind of tying, what is that phrase? The people are really um, putting two and two together for themselves. Very, mm -hmm. it's like more easy for them to grasp. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely helps them to contextualize it. But mm -hmm. then, you know, Sebastian, I have a question for you because it's been interesting how the parables between COVID-19 and the AIDS epidemic have come up. And I think yeah. this series uh, does a really good job in lots of little ways about showing how disregarded the LGBT community were. For mm -hmm. example, there is one scene where one of the characters is um, is is straight, but is asking a doctor for informational material for uh, is a woman, and is asking the doctor for informational material about AIDS, and the doctor just brushes them off like it doesn't concern you. Get out of the yeah. office. Why would I even have that? I don't deal with those things, you know. And it was so like the not just the disrespect, but the sort of visceral reaction against. HIV AIDS and anyone who had it was was quite intense and the government sort of blind eye and that I think has been a huge critique of people who are drawing those lines between COVID-19 and HIV AIDS mm -hmm. is because the government very much was with some exceptions mm. <laughs> bleach, um, you know, <laughs> was uh, very much paying attention and responding to it yeah so, so what are your thoughts on that Sebastian well I mean <sighs> One of the, the the big parallels, I don't know if the show captured this or not, is how incredibly sure people were about things about HIV, only to double back on it a couple months later. And this is something we're going through now with COVID. You know, the, the initial response was, well, you know, young people, they're fine. They're not going to get it. And then they're like, well, when we said young people, we meant like infant to eight. If you're a teenager... As far as COVID's concerned, you're an adult. And then people were like, well, you know, and then back and forth and back and forth. Who's susceptible? What's susceptible? Is there a, are there racial components to it? No, obviously there's not racial components. And then we're all going to pretend like there's no racial component. And then later on, we're going to say, well, actually there's, there's life issues there, like chronic poverty, you know, the, a lot of things that go with chronic poverty, like diabetes and the, that kind of thing was also very much an issue with HIV where the, 
the sort of media and government, uh, I'm going to say propaganda in the most neutral term, like propaganda is any information that comes from a formal body. So the, the, the propaganda around HIV uh, changed regularly all the time as they learned new things. And sometimes there were deliberate lies, like um, for a while there, they were saying condoms were not effective, just like for a while there, they were saying that with COVID masks were not effective. But the reason why they were saying that was to preserve masks for the frontline workers. So there were little lies that came along the way while they were still figuring things out. When they first discovered that HIV was sexually transmissible, they wanted to double check. Like they weren't just going to be like, hey, everyone, just wear a jimmy and you'll be fine. They're mm -hmm. like, well, we should probably look into this and make sure we know what we're talking about before we get into this. So there, there were little bits like that. So anytime you look at the media and you see a new update about COVID and you're like, wait a minute, a month ago, you said literally the opposite. That is what the HIV AIDS epidemic was like, except instead of over, what are we in now? The 13th month, I think. This was over like a 20 year period because there was so little funding and effort going, uh, going into HIV research. So imagine everything you're going through now, dear listener, uh, <laughs> with regards to COVID, um, and then spread that out over a 20 year period while you're watching your friends and family die. So, I mean, the, there are some parallels there, especially with regards to the, the information and the confusion and how things are getting updated all the time. Some of it is to cover their tracks because what they're trying to do is affect behavior. So, I mean, like, this is one of the things that was pointed out to me recently that the state has good reason to lie to you sometimes. Uh, and lies are not always big lies. Like one of my favorites is like, what are the three R's of primary education? Like reading, writing, and arithmetic, except writing starts with a W and arithmetic starts with <laughs> an A. But like, we just say the three R's to make it easier to remember. We do that sort of thing all the time. Same thing, washing your hands for happy birthday. Really happy birthday is about three seconds longer than it needs to be, but who cares you're washing your hands, right? So little lies like that. Um, and sometimes we need to affect people's behavior in a way that protects them by either overinflating or by exaggerating. And, and you get into it, and you're like, well, you know, this, um, you know, turns out sexual transmission is, you know, a little bit overly broad because, you know, you can get HIV from oral sex, but it's really rare and difficult. But I, mean, just gonna... I, I think it takes a gallon of saliva uh, I mean, you'd have to be there a while. Yeah, to, and you <laughs> have to have, like, achieve like, those goals. Flossed yeah, your teeth like, recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah microabrasions. Yeah. You know, you remind me of my favorite piece of government propaganda ever. This is so unrelated. Mm. But <laughs> <laughs> there, it is widely believed that carrots help you see in the dark. Oh, <laughs> yes. At, at least yeah. in the UK. And it is at, at uh, Codswallop. And yeah. it, was, it was propaganda in wartime Britain to get more because they had to they turned all the lights to avoid being bombed so the government put out official statements saying eating carrots help you see better um but they also want everybody to grow their own food because of the german bombing so yeah. they, they were like two birds one stone let's just right. tell everyone carrots help you see in the well dark. they were also saying that the brits were eating a lot of carrots so they could see better in the dark because they didn't want germany to know that england had discovered radar mm. <laughs> So the Germans thought they were just able to see them better. Just seeing them better, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yes, you're right. I mean, government government isn't always malicious in its intent, but I think we're 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 getting a little bit uh, away from it. And mm -hmm. I do want to mention that it was interesting to see the reaction of 
doctors and the states evolve over the course of the series yeah i thought was quite reflective um you know i do want to recognize the incredible work by you know health providers at the time as is now you know dr fauci in the u.s he was you know really at the forefront of the hiv aids epidemic in the 80s really cut his teeth on on that crisis I, I want to take a step back a second and talk about queer representation of the HIV AIDS epidemic, because this is not an easy thing to watch. It's six episodes. And uh, I knew sitting down that this is going to be hard work to watch. You know, there are some subject matter in queer history that, first of all, there's not a lot of subject matter in queer history, which isn't depressing. Mm. <laughs> but there are, there are certain items which are quite depressing. And uh, you just know that when you see an ensemble cast, not all of them are going to make it. Yeah. You know, and, and it's hard to build this sort of attachment to characters where in the back of your mind, you know they might not they might not make it all the way. It's definitely an emotional labor to watch this, watch this series. Did you two find the same thing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I also think I was saying this too, that right now with the world being in a pandemic and just everything feeling extra heavy, mm-hmm. that it made it even more difficult because it didn't feel like there was an easy escape afterwards to be like, well, I'm just going to go hang out with a bunch of my friends to feel good. <laughs> right. you know? um, so I definitely think that affected it. But also, I mean, I think that's a good point that it is really heavy and it's hard to watch. But then think about that like times a thousand living through it and then you know you develop these emotional connections to these characters but you know for the people who lived through it it was you know it was their best friends that they were losing yeah so I think you know showing that and being able for the audience to be able to um kind of get a taste about that I guess you know or seeing what that was like because, yeah, I think it's easy to escape into art that is, you know, always has a happy ending mm-hmm. and there's a certain privilege in or people. Escapism. Yeah, that can escape that way or only consume such media. But it, this is the truth of so many queer people. And I mean, again, it, it's not like it's not like um, like a, a Marvel movie when <laughs> it's just superheroes and it's this <laughs> other thing. But when it's like about a group of queer people and based so heavily in actual events, watching it as a queer person today does mm-hmm. make it hit a lot harder. Mm-hmm. And personally, I was saying this to M. I loved um, two things about it. One, the catharsis of it, of just like, it feels like with everything so heavy right now, it was nice to watch and better understand queer history. And it made me as a 22 year old, so much more appreciative of, um, uh, queer people older than I am. I, because mm-hmm. I am, you know, involved in the queer community, and there's people who are my friends who live through that. And yeah. I've never had, nor would I ever make them have this conversation mm-hmm. with me, but I've never had that full conversation with everyone I know, and I couldn't imagine. Yeah, because um, I, I mean, we, I mean, we go to theater school, so we also <laughs> do know like a handful of older new, gay men. Numerous handfuls. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, but I mean, I've had conversations with people that I know and am close with say, like, I lost count of how many friends that I lost. Like, I, I don't yeah. even know how many it was. Or I've heard people say the only reason I survived was because I was in a monogamous relationship at that time. But if I wasn't, I probably wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. I I was told by um oh it's oh the name will come to me, but um was one of the some of the long-term advocates with the Ottawa AIDS uh, Society Sev. I'm sure you might be thinking of the same person as I am. Um but you know some yeah, Jay, you told me that uh, you only ever, and he's actually been living with HIV uh, for for decades now. He's, he's one the longest the surviving uh, Canadian patient. Get, yeah. yeah, Canadian to be diagnosed with HIV. He's one of the first in Canada, and he's been a, a longtime survivor. Yeah. yeah, and he said to me, I mean, it's it's grim stuff, but he said to me, you were either unbelievably lucky or incredibly boring. Like that was the only <laughs> scenario, which is which is heartbreaking you know it made me think about the sort of context of you know my own life I obviously wasn't alive in the 80s despite some listeners thinking that I am of that age um <laughs> I just turned 30 but my my mother was you know a 18 and in her early 20s in the 80s she was very much of the sort of dem you know, demographic obviously not a gay man um but when you know when I came out as gay, it makes you think about the context of what she thought, mm -hmm. having right. grown up in a world where gay men die, mm -hmm. um, you know, just just for you know being gay. So yeah, it certainly helps to contextualize not only the lives of the LGBT folks at the time, but the ripple effect that that's had on generations that follow since. Yeah, it because I think too. I mean, the show even did a good job of. Um, also showing that when people got sick they were uh, hated on a lot and mm -hmm. a lot of grief was given to them um I won't give specifics for the sake of spoilers but it again separating it from you know the COVID pandemic that we're in today when someone was diagnosed it quite literally outed them mm -hmm. in mainstream people's eyes and then like it almost like discredited their experience as a human being, not only as a, someone who's terminally ill, but someone who is a worker, is a parent, or who is, you know, a friend, a lover. And it's just like, like to add um, another expression I can't think of, to add um, insult to injury. injury. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it was literally that, it was literally that. And that's highlighted yeah. in the show as well. And it's not the same as, you know, people quote unquote getting hate for not doing COVID protocols correctly right. and then catching COVID. That's not what it is. But it's, that like these people would get sick and then some, some of them, their families would find out, oh, you're gay and then disown them <laughs> and then not even be there for them while they're sick, you know? Yeah. yeah. Now I, I didn't see It's a Sin, but they actually handled this with a lot of uh, dignity and, and sort of historical accuracy in the show Glow. It's a mm -hmm. show about oh. female pro wrestlers. Where I haven't seen the whole thing, but I've seen some of it. One of the characters gets a call, season three or something like that, saying, uh, just so you know, you are listed as the emergency contact for one of your friends. Uh, he has passed away recently. And just so you know, there will be no funeral homes that accept his body. Mm -hmm. And the, the show was, it takes place in the 80s. And it was like, that was the moment you found out this character was gay. And then he went through this whole thing with that. But... Um, it was really handled in such a subtle matter of fact way that if you knew what, what that meant, then you knew exactly what that meant. And it was, I don't know, they, they, they didn't dwell on it. They just sort of glossed over it because unfortunately that's kind of how it was, you know, that uh, 
if you were a survivor, it may have been because you were in the closet. Like being in the closet could right. also save your life. Mm-hmm. So if you did have friends who died, sometimes you didn't go to their funeral. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you didn't mention it to anyone. It was yeah. a hard time for a lot of people. And especially for people who, I mean, there were some queer people who just got it from one interaction and weren't even that um, quote unquote promiscuous, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, I again, it in turn sort of demonized promiscuity or right. se- sexual liberation that way. And like, um, you know, queer people were criticized all the time for sleeping around too much. And then, or like, they can't keep it in their pants and all this stuff, but it really just took one. And again, um, that's highlighted in the show. Mm-hmm. I won't <laughs> say any more than that. <laughs> one, of th- one of the things that I wanted to kind of expand on from that, which I don't think you two have seen, but one of the themes that comes up in one of the later episodes is that the consequence of this culture of shame and and just the idea that you are dirty. First of all, the idea of being dirty for having HIV AIDS is something that 30, 40 years later, we still aren't quite shaking. You oh, know, yeah. are you clean mm-hmm. is still, unfortunately, something that comes up. And it's like that. And it's it's an awful remnant of of that uh, hysteria at the time. Um but one of the things that come up is that it was such a crippling fear of even knowing whether or not you have HIV that some gay men just refuse to be tested. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we did, we did a show on this Sebastian, what, three, four years ago. Like oh it's, it's something that still is, is there. Mm-hmm. And there's almost a willful ignorance. You know, if I don't know, then I can't be guilty. And what that and the show in the later episodes explores that the idea of how somebody may have killed somebody mm-hmm. by w- refusing to to deal with the the cultural impact and and the personal impact of n- knowing whether or not they have HIV. I mean, the idea that you could just that you could kill somebody from having sex and, and be responsible for that is is astonishing i mean it makes me think of how we're responding to covid19 now like people who have contracting it and and uh, avoiding grandparents and, and so on and i think we're we're dealing with some of the similar ethical questions but yeah it's it's certainly a uh, harrowing thing to to watch but also equally entertaining great program <laughs> <laughs> yes it is, uh, I strongly recommend it. Mm-hmm. It broke streaming records for Channel 4. Eight million people uh, streamed wow. it on the first day of its release. More than uh, Skins? That's amazing. More than any other show on Channel 4's entire history. It was a Whoa. overnight blockbuster success. Wow. Um, Russell T. Davis actually thought the pandemic would make it do badly, but it's actually seemed to have built that connection that people didn't expect. Um, I've watched so much TV during this pandemic. <laughs> yeah, <I'm sure>. yeah. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things I wanted to note was this cast was. Uh, we'll dive into the topic of queer roles and queer casts, but very quickly, this was the first UK production to make use of an intimacy consultant. Mm. Like they took the sex scenes so seriously that they had multiple rehearsals, clothes on. The sex scenes were choreographed dances. Um, and there was somebody whose job it was, was to have a conversation between the actors involved and get everybody to a comfortable space 
where the choreography is going to happen in in a in a comfortable way. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think you could see that in in the sex scenes? Like when you when you think about it, did you get a sense that of that? Yes, most definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also, I mean, it's on HBO and, you know, the sex scenes are very elaborate as one could assume. <laughs> um, and so, yes, I, I thought it was very apparent just in the way that they were handled so well. And I feel like in order to have sex scenes that are that I don't want to say graphic, but you know, that that are that explicit, that I vivid. think it's yes, vivid. <laughs> that it is, um, I think it's necessary to have an intimacy coordinator on set to be handling that. Cause honestly, I think it's dangerous to just try to handle those without a professional on set. Well, and especially on uh, a piece where sex is such a relevant part to the right. story and mm. it, it ties to a lot of the issues and trauma in that way. And there's like a couple, again, I won't go into detail, but there's a couple that like are problematic sex occurrences. And Mm -hmm. so like choreographing it, not only so people physically don't get hurt, but then mentally also making sure that it's like a scene that you can do, walk away from and we're good. And there's like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Clear boundaries. Clear boundaries. You know, know, like, yeah, the, those actors go in knowing what's happening, right. no surprises. Because that's another thing I don't think you can fully give over to a scene if you aren't fully comfortable or aware of what's going to happen. Because <laughs> then you're going to be out of it thinking about like, oh, well, what's going to happen next? Now, how are we going to touch each other? You know, like, if, but if you know all of that and it's choreographed, I also think that then the acting is a lot better too. It is. So my first instinct when I heard about this was that this sounds kind of corny and cringy. But the way that you're talking about it, actually I have a totally different impression now, which is that this is exactly like having a fight scene coordinator. Oh, it's exactly the same, yeah. Yeah. Because in a well-done fight scene, the fight tells a story. Mm -hmm. So the most famous and simple example that I can give in 20 seconds or less is when Inigo Montoya and Wesley have their first duel and each of them switch from left hand to right hand. That mm-hmm. tells you something about their character, about them being confident, about them being uh, um, very competent, about being very good swordsmen, about being comfortable with their opponent. And that moment when they switch hands actually tells you something about them. So if you're seeing a sex scene and it's just two bodies slapping up against each other, then that's just gratuitous. But if the sequence in which stuff happens you can actually tell a narrative there about being comfortable, mm-hmm. yeah. being uncomfortable, horrible things happening, good things happening, about, in this case, hesitation, perhaps, or, or fear. Like, you can mm-hmm. actually coordinate it like you would, I don't know, like WWE wrestling or a kung fu match or, like, you know, like, a, 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 what's the one where Keanu Reeves kills everyone? I mean, that's pretty much any Keanu Reeves. <laughs> John Wick. Like, the that's John the Wick one, yeah. fight scenes told a story. Like, you mm-hmm. could do that with sex if you treat it maturely. Yeah. And I think that actually you could probably do something that like that that isn't just like, oh, okay, all right, let, let's watch the movies now. Like, well, we're going to have to jump to a track. This is Ollie Alexander uh, from, I think, Kings uh, is um, the... Uh, the band that he is with, he is uh, Years and Years, sorry, big fan of Years and Years, the British band. Ollie Alexander is the frontman for the band. This is his first acting role in It's a Sin. 
this is his cover of uh, the Pet Shop Boys, It's a Sin. When I look back upon my life, it's always with a sense of shame. I've always been the one to blame. For everything I long to do No matter when or where or who Has one thing in common too It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sin It's a sin Everything I've ever done, everything I ever do Every place I've ever been, everywhere I'm going to It's a sin At school they taught me how to be So pure in thought and word and deed They didn't quite succeed It's a sin It's a sin Everything I've ever done Everything I ever do Every place I've ever been Everywhere I'm going to It's a sin I've always been the one to blame Welcome back to Canque, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. My name's Sebastian. And that was Years and Years' cover of It's a Sin. I had earlier said it was Ollie, Ollie Murr's cover, not Ollie Murr's, Ollie Alexander's cover. Mm. Um, but uh, Ollie Alexander is obviously the front man of the band Years and Years. Um, and that was who had done this particular cover. Now, Sebastian, that yes. was a, a wild rush of a conversation through <laughs> It's a Sin. Um, right. I'm not going to retread ground from what we talked about there, but I do want to talk to you about secret cinema. Secret cinema. Secret cinema. So the uh, LGBT Pride, Pride PEI in PEI, Prince Edward Island. Yes. Uh, they have, they're kind of trying to get the message out that they're Pride Plus. You know, of course, everyone wants to do the parade in, in you know, in the, in the summer. Everybody loves that piece. 
But, you know, folks are gay the whole year round. And it's not just about, I mean, it, it, there's a lot to be said about pride. But yeah. sometimes it's nice to get to know each other, understand each other a bit more. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they have a six film series playing at the city cinema in Charlottetown. And they're not letting anybody know what the six films are. Ooh. So yes, it's like a queer curated film experience. Uh -huh. uh, now, somebody uh, did let slip that there are some films or at least a film by a certain John Waters. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yes, you're excited by that. The yeah. uh, US filmmaker John Waters. I reckon you could easily do six just all Canadian films. I think that's more than more than reasonable. I hope uh, they so, do Outrageous. That was a really good movie. It came out in like 81 or something like that. It was a film in Toronto. So yeah, my my question for you, Sebastian, mm. uh, if you were to curate a secret cinema, uh, oh, they're yes. they're inviting folks from PEI to come and, and join and buy tickets and and sort of learn from each of the films. They right. they cover uh, either a different topic or a different experience from different characters, and are sort of they said that they're movies that cinema goers ought to see. Uh, and I feel like John Waters covers that ground quite nicely. Oh yes, oh yes, he's a he's a special cookie, all right. So, um, what six would you would you put uh, if you were to create a secret cinema? Well, I mean, uh, if I were to emphasize Canadian made, um, then I would definitely put Better Than Chocolate, which is a counting of the uh, Little Sisters bookstore controversy in Vancouver. Uh, as told from the perspective of one of the employees, it was a, a really well done movie, uh, and it got famous for the song "I Am Not a Effing Drag Queen," which was sung by a trans woman. Um, there's also "Breakfast with Scott," Scott spelled with one T, which is great a, film, a family friendly um, Christmas themed like it, it's. It's meant to be a Hallmark movie that you watch with your family, but the main character is a gay 12-year-old kid. And it was definitely filmed in, in uh, Hamilton. They, they make no qualms of the fact that they are at the Eaton Center. Um, I did mention Outrageous, and that was filmed in the early 80s in Toronto. And you could tell that it's Toronto because everything worth looking at is covered in scaffolding. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's actually about one of the great uh, female impersonators of Canada. Female impersonators being the Canadian variety of drag, where it yeah. wasn't that he did he didn't impersonate women in general. He like specifically impersonated Liza Minnelli or Bette Midler. Like there were specific women that he impersonated and sung their songs using their voice. He was a really good performer. Um, I don't know. Uh, talking about it's a sin in HIV, I would definitely say Philadelphia. There was kind of no HIV funding uh, to speak of, at least not from the public, uh, apart from like obviously like the queer community, but from the, the greater public. Um, having hunky young Antonio Banderas uh, not married, but wanting to marry Tom Hanks and then having to watch Tom Hanks die of HIV just broke America's heart because it, uh, Tom Hanks is America's sweetheart. Mm. It was a very influential movie. Uh, it was very historically important, more because of what it did um, in terms of HIV funding and research. Uh, I would also recommend, if you've never seen The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the low-budget Australian classic that changed how people consume queer media, I would say. How non-queer people consume queer media, because... Generally speaking, if you're talking about queer movies, it's going to be um, 
low budget, community oriented, you know, people making their own stuff, their neighbors watching it. You don't get a lot of big budget uh, content going on. And it, that kind of did change the game. Am I up to six? I think I might be up to I six. I think you are. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, amazing movie recommendations. Right off the top of my head. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, that's that's really impressive. Uh, my first one has to be Prayers for Bobby. I mean, absolutely powerful piece. Made me cry like three or four times. Uh, it certainly is. Um, it's fantastic. I won't get, I won't give it away because it's a bit of a spoiler if I sort of give too much of the the premise away. But uh, Prayers for Bobby. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, essentially about a woman's grief for her son uh, who passes from. Uh, suicide, which is mm-hmm. uh, very grim. So beware that that is uh, one of the one of the uh, key topics. Um, the film Pride, uh, which was set in yeah. Wales, about the the miners. Uh, you know, um, uh, is it London miners? Yeah. Uh, you know, London gays for the miners. Yeah, uh, you made me watch it, and it was a really good movie. It, it had was the a same fantastic movie. It had the same like tone and feel of uh, Kinky Boots. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And it also has Bill Nye and Melda Staunton like, and Dominic West. Amazing cast on that one. Um, I also wrote down Boy Erased, which was the American movie with uh, Nicole Kidman. And uh, that one is about conversion therapy. So that one gives you a really good idea of what uh, conversion therapy is all about. Um and then I, I had written down um, A Single Man, which I believe was by Christopher Isherwood. And Isherwood also wrote Cabaret. Okay. And he wrote, uh, so he wrote Cabaret, uh, A Single Man, and another piece of sort of queer film that's a, a major classic. But uh, Matt Smith, who played Doctor Who, uh, was also in a film called Isherwood and His Kind, where he's this uh, English writer who is Christopher Isherwood, who moves to Berlin at the rise of Nazi Germany um, and then has to flee afterwards. So that's sort of what was his inspiration for Cabaret. So Isherwood and His Kind is a fantastic um, piece about that as well. And I think that brings me that brings me up to five. Mm. Um, and honestly, I like The Birdcage. I mean, I think <laughs> that's such a fun fun movie you know how can you not like the birch cage neither of us said a gregoraki movie i'm pretty disappointed in us ah oh, well we shall um we, we we shall be judged is uh really where we're gonna end up with now, i one. know you've seen a gregoraki movie though i know you've seen uh was it invisible skin i think mysterious king mysterious skin that's it that was his uh i think that was his last major movie gregoraki yeah. does like heavy... and that's with joseph got young joseph gordon levy yeah movie. yeah 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 very good director, but very heavy material. I tried to recommend more lighthearted things. I mean, this morning I, I re-re-rewatched Dolomite, the Rudy Ray Moore classics. I mean, this is I'm kind of on a cinema kick of my own right now. So I like it. Well, yeah. let us know what you think should be on the top six of a secret cinema. Uh, and maybe, you know, I reckon that uh, our listeners should try and connect to each other uh, or connect with other queer folks in your area. Um, team up with five friends. Each of you pick a film and take in turns uh, hosting a film night. Uh, also pick a spare queer... just in case one of you accidentally pick the same one. This is true. There are certain ones that could be... <laughs> That could uh, come up more than once. Yeah. But yes, absolutely. That's the idea that we want to leave you with. Secret cinema. 
uh, we invite you all to share your experiences with each other. Um, that's all we've got time for right now, I believe. Before we go, we are playing out with a track from Wake Island, the Montreal duo, and this is uh, Nouvelle Voyage. I've been Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And thank you for listening.